Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, Mark Ryle travels into the multiverse with Doctor Strange. We remember the great Orson Welles on his birthday. Plus documentary filmmaker Ross Whitaker on his favourite film. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk, although if you're listening on the radio this week, it's coming to you at the later time of 9pm. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and life is treating you fine. Uh, A lot of people commiserating with me last week because I talked about my wife being away <laughs> and how hard it was in the household and a lot of people got in touch with my wife friends of hers who'd heard the show actually and you know I'm thinking this might be a new way for me to communicate you know send messages home through the medium of radio buy me more beer so and also a lot of people got in touch last week about Eamon Dunphy uh, who was on talking about his favorite movie and it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest people really admire Eamon Dunphy at this stage of his career I have to say he you know he divided opinion a a lot and maybe he still does to a certain extent but I think there's a huge amount of respect for him out there because he's a man who kind of stuck to his principles all his life Uh, and when he changed his mind he admitted it and you know he he had to deal with being the nation's villain basically during Italia 90 and I think there's a lot of as I say respect for him out there I imagine he's one of those type of people who you know, if he were to walk down Grafton Street, it would take him hours because people would just come up and talk to him endlessly. Anyway, let's do it all again this week. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. I'm so sorry. It was, I didn't think properly about what I was doing and it was a stupid thing to do and, and I don't want you to feel awkward about it because it was all my fault. Charlie, hang on. I shouldn't have kissed you. But you just felt pressured to do it because I asked, and I know you probably don't want to talk to me ever again, but I at least had to say sorry. See if maybe there's a chance we can still be friends. Charlie. I don't want to lose you because I did something stupid. Charlie. I'm just so sorry I ran away last night. I was just freaking out because I... I was confused and surprised and, like, honestly, I'm having a proper full-on gay crisis. And it's not that I didn't want to, you know, kiss you. I I was just so confused. Now that's from, it's two young men, two actors, two characters as well. Charlie played by Joe Locke and also Nick played by Kit Connor. And that's from a Netflix show that I think came out about three weeks ago and I just didn't get around to it but but by God I'm glad I did because it's called Heartstopper it's about one young man in particular Charlie who's had a tough time in school uh, he was bullied mostly because he's gay they kind of sorted out his bullying and he has a couple of really close pals and he has a boyfriend but that's not really working out and then in class one day he's chosen to sit beside a boy called Joe who Seems like the stereotypical rugby playing teenager, but he's also a sweetheart 
and they form a really interesting relationship that becomes, I don't want to give a spoiler, but romantic. You'll see that from the trailer itself. Now, this is billed as kind of a, a young adult piece, and I suppose it probably is, but it's absolutely delightful. It's sweet. It's heartwarming. It's serious at times because it's looking at homophobic bullying, toxic masculinity in schools. Uh, there's transgender issues in there as well. But I suppose at its heart, it's a lovely romantic story uh, about two young people trying to work out a possible romantic relationship. And, you know, I hope this doesn't sound heteronormative or something like that, but I think, you know, all great love stories are just that. If you take a movie like Brokeback Mountain, you forget that it's a gay story at its heart. It's just two people negotiating a love affair, uh, which is all any of us do. So this is just a beautifully told, possibly star-crossed love story. There's a gorgeous hue to it. H-U-E. There's no hues in it, as I know. But it, it, it looks beautiful, but there's a kind of jolly slightly melancholy feel to it as i say it's occasionally serious but it's really really sweet i watched it because i had to for something that's coming up but then i couldn't stop watching it it's absolutely delightful my wife who returned (laughs) met watched it with me as well and absolutely loved it and i think there wasn't a huge kerfuffle about it or anything it's been there three weeks but i noticed it's in the top 10 in the Irish one, as of checking today, the top 10 shows on Netflix. And I think this is one of those that's going to be a slow burner, but word of mouth will spread it around. It's it's absolutely delightful. It's based on a web comic series, whatever that means, but it's it's a real delight. And it reminded me a lot of school uh, in a good way and the friendships we make and the loves we try and engineer. It's absolutely delightful. Heartstopper on Netflix. Definitely worth your time. I can assure you of that. Now, quickly, I just want to tell you about a show that started on Sky Atlantic on Thursday night called The Staircase. Now, you may know that The Staircase is a documentary series, which is still on Netflix, all about this writer in America called Michael Peterson, who was accused of killing his wife, Kathleen, in their home in North Carolina. She was found at the end of a staircase, a long staircase, hence the title staircase, with a lot of blood. He obviously denied murder, but he was accused of it. And there was a whole trial. And there's a remarkable documentary, still on Netflix, from 2004, where a French film crew basically film his trial and what happens. He was an interesting character. He still is. He's still alive. And the French film crew get incredible access. And it's one of the best true crime docs I've ever seen. And we reviewed it whenever a couple of years ago, even though it, it it was made years before that. If you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But they've made a fictionalized version of this now, starring Colin Firth as the aforementioned Michael Peterson and Tony Collette as his now dead wife, Kathleen Peterson. I've only watched one episode but very good so far. I mean, it was probably an obvious remake. It was crying out to be a remake because when you watch The Staircase, you are of the feeling when you're watching it, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. So it's no surprise that they've made this. I've only watched one episode, but it was thoroughly enjoyable so far. Colin Firth really inhabits Michael Peterson as a quirky, unusual, distraught, 
lot of adjectives I could use. He does it really well. He's not being bombastic. He's being very gentle and mild and occasionally erupts in anger. Great performance so far. As I say, I've only watched one episode, but I think I'm going to stick with it. It seems quite similar to the documentary in some ways. Now, I think there's going to be a lot more conjecture in this in terms of guilt and innocence, but time will tell. Funny story about the staircase. I got an email on, I think it was on Monday of last week, about the staircase and an offering of talent. And I really didn't read the email. I don't work on Mondays because I work on Saturdays, not to bore you with the logistics of my week, but I don't work most Mondays. And so sometimes if I get an email on a Monday, I literally half read it. I see what it's about and I file it in, not bothered or whatever. And I half read this and I saw Colin Firth and Tony Collette. And I thought, yeah, okay. So I wrote back to the people and I said, yes, put me down for that. It's awaiting approval. And it came back the next day approved. And I thought that's, fairly quick you know with these Hollywood bigwigs you sometimes have to jump through a lot of hoops and it takes a long time and I thought that's great and then the interview was all set up for this Monday which I was going to work on specifically to talk to Tony, Tony Collette and Colin Firth and just reread it on Friday and in fact I had an interview set up with a forensic psychologist who uh, had nothing to do with the staircase so there you go folks Read your emails would be my advice to you. Or suddenly you'll find yourself talking to someone you have no idea who they are. If you want to get in touch with me about any TV or movie related matter, you can email me screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. And now we turn to the week's new releases. And the big one of the week is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Our own Doctor Strange, complete with cinematic cape, is on the line. Mark Ryle, hello. Hey, John. How are you doing? Very well, very well. So listen, I didn't get to this this week, unfortunately, but you're doing the heavy lifting for me. Marvel, it's always an event. Benedict Cumberbatch, we're fans of him mostly on this show, I have to say, having interviewed him a few times. Mm. But... uh, I, I kind of know, uh, yeah, I kind of know the answer. So maybe just uh, situate this one for our listeners. Okay, so Benedict Cumberbatch is back in the second. Uh, it's, I suppose he's the Marvel Paul Daniels, the second <laughs> Doctor Strange movie. The first one was 2016, and this is the 28th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so this is his second freestanding movie as Doctor Strange. He was been in other ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he's been in other stuff. Don't ask me. No, I just mean like, for instance, he was in the recent Spider-Man movie. He's shown up in Avengers movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's a character that exists, if you'll pardon the pun, across the multiverse of Disney. He's earning his money. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, the story with this one is uh, this teenager shows up um, from a parallel universe and Doctor Strange has to protect her from... Elizabeth Olsen's Scarlet Witch, who is now a baddie for some reason. I couldn't work out. Um, the teenager uh, called America Chavez, she's got the ability to travel from one universe to another parallel universe. And the Scarlet Witch wants to kill her and to steal her ability so that she can be with her children or something. That's about all I'm going to say about the plot, because partly because I could, I could not care less, but mostly because the plot is it's completely inconsequential. I was, I, I've been asked not to spoil any plot details, but I honestly don't think I could because this kind of 
arrives pre-spoiled, like like bad meat. <laughs> you could hear the stench, or you could smell the stench as you entered the cinema. I'm sensing. Oh man, yeah, I could smell something. Um, oh. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you're saying top of the line, this is poor. Yeah, I'm just going to come straight out and say it right off the bat. There, there's no art or craft involved in this whatsoever. It's nothing more than a a, a, a technical achievement. Um, you know, ideally, a movie should have character-driven plot and decent dialogue, and this has got none of those things. It is, I, it's definitely the most blatant demonstration um, so far of how cynical these things are getting, and. At the end of the day, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness or Doctor Strange 2 or whatever you want to call it, it is pure product. It's an object that has been designed with the sole purpose of filling a gap on the Marvel calendar. And it's just content without any artistic reason for existing whatsoever. So you think they're just literally, we have time, we'll do another Marvel movie. It fits before the next Avengers movie kind of thing. Let's, let's just toss one out. Marvel started making movies back in 2008 mm. and at that time around that time there would be one a year and it was first of all it was an event and secondly they were they were pretty good movies yeah this is the fifth Marvel movie that we've had in 12 months and that's not counting the the Venom thing and the Morbius thing and there are another two coming before November mm. um I really wish I was this easily pleased because first of all I would be a lot happier and secondly, I would be I would be very well served. Yeah. So that's the fifth this year. Well, no, over twelve months. Over not, twelve not, months. Yeah. Not since the start of January. But the, I have to come on here every six weeks and explain how this space <laughs> wizard movie is slightly different to the last space <laughs> wizard movie, and they're all the same space what, wizard movie. What was the last Marvel movie we reviewed? Oh God, um, the last Marvel one might have been. I don't know. I'd have to check my my, my okay. list of my list of hate <laughs> but hang on spider-man wasn't oh, that was Marvel. that was that was yeah i think that that's uh, that's a weird one that's sony it's it's not no, it's, yeah. i don't know it's, We're it's mixing it's, up it's our franchise yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that was a good one but anyway yeah it no, was i, I mean I'm, trying... I'm not saying they're not they're not hit and miss but mm. this is this is just it's just too much you know um go ahead well, I was just going to say, right, so I, I talked about Benedict Cumberbatch at the start. Mm. Like, he's a great actor. I think we both yeah. agree on that. What, what What's he doing here? Like, is it just the material is so weak, even he can't what, say it? Or what, is he not what, trying? What, He's wasting his time, is what he's doing here. <laughs> okay. There's the, the pro, like, there's no story. Okay, this is purely just moving pieces around. There's nothing to grasp onto in this because characterization is is completely non-existent, and all Benedict Cumberbatch is given to do is to spout ridiculously overcomplicated exposition explaining why he needs to get from point A to point B. Then he goes to point B and wiggles his fingers at a tennis ball and a stick that's going to be replaced by some computer-generated ones and zeros. And then he does it all over again. The, the new character who's played by a young actor called uh, Satichel Gomez, right? The jacket that she's wearing is actually more interesting than her character. I spent more time trying to make out what was on her jacket than I was listening to what she was saying or doing. Wow. Uh, was this not directed by Sam Raimi? Yeah. Now, believe it or not. Who, you actually, know, made Dark Man, you know? Exactly. No, 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 no. I was quite optimistic about this before I saw it. Um, I, uh, first of all, I didn't mind the first Doctor Strange movie. 
Mm. Um, and but I, I have a real soft spot for Sam Raimi. He's, As do he's I. A, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's he's an eccentric. He's he's a he's a homegrown filmmaker, mm. and he he wears his uh, his pulp influences, if you like, very proudly. Yeah. Uh, he also made two of the best comic book movies ever with the the first two Tobey Maguire Spider Man movies. Absolutely, completely agree. I thought the second one in particular was brilliant. I think the second one, in my opinion, it's still the high watermark for these things. Mm. Um, but so what happened here? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 well, quite honestly, apart from the, you know, that traditional Bruce Campbell cameo, there's no sign of Sam Raimi's hand in this at all, apart from maybe two minutes of footage near the, ver- near the very end of the movie. But beyond that, I have a, it could really have been directed by literally anyone. And I have a funny feeling that it might have been deliter- directed by, by somebody else. I would question the level of Raimi's involvement because we spoke about this before when we when we were looking at the Eternals. Um, was it a couple? Of, it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. I can't remember now. But how how ridiculous it is to to sign up a filmmaker like Chloe Zhao, yeah, and to make her to give her something like this, and you know how you can't fight that Marvel formula or you can't fight against the algorithm. Mm. But I really strongly believe that Marvel are just using directors like like Zhao and and Sam Raimi purely for their marketing material value not for their value as filmmakers mm. they're, they're all they are is they're an impressive name for the poster and nothing more because these things have just turned into this the most soulless product and assembled on a conveyor belt and churned out like like white bread it is such a waste of money and time and talent and I, I hope the money is extraordinary because the talent and the time being squandered on these things is just staggering. Well, you know, it's funny. There is, I, I see the argument because I've heard this expressed before from others as well, that when it comes to these Marvel movies with these directors who are going to give it an almost artistic sheen, what's really happened is the movie in essence has been, you know, made by a committee almost. And then yeah. these people are brought in to kind of tinker at the edges. Now, not to trouble the news talk defamation lawyers, this is all conjecture on our part it's and true. we know nothing of this for a fact <laughs> i'm basing this on nothing apart from my my opinion on what i've seen i yeah. don't i don't believe that it's possible to have this many different filmmakers all churning out the same generic product mm. i was trying to think back i remember eternals was pretty bad i liked black widow last year with Scarlett I mean, Johansson that had some redeeming features but look let's focus on Doctor Strange for a second yeah, to okay. finish up you said this is pretty <laughs> god awful right and it sounds particularly bad and pointless so yeah. it, it, but and you see I don't want to do a disservice to Marvel fans because I am to an extent right you've liked some of the movies I love those Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies Avengers Endgame I've watched it a few times with my son so mm. I'm not saying they're pushing an open door but but like we're we're not we don't hate on these things for no reason but why who is going to is a Marvel fan going to be enthused by this I, I don't, I, you know what, I don't know. What I should be doing if I'm doing this job properly is I should be approaching every single movie with an open mind, you know. Yes. But it, there's just, it's, this, is, it's, this is so poor, I don't know how I could put a positive spin on it. Mm. I, w- I really wouldn't mind if there was a half-decent story buried under all of that guff about <laughs> par- parallel universes and, you know, magic books. But there, there's nothing, there's just... It's an endless series of references to other movies and other franchises to give 
the Marvel fans this illusion of an affinity or of kinship mm. that they're they're being rewarded for being a good boy and eating all of the other Marvel biscuits, you know, <laughs> for consuming all of the other products that Marvel are selling. And you know, recognizing a reference to some other movie, it's not it's not clever storytelling. Okay, let's take a quick clip. God help us. <laughs> Someone once told me that the reality I thought I knew was just one of many. Be careful which path you travel down. The stronger than you have lost their way. You think there will be no consequences? We're in the end game now. I sacrificed everything. And it meant nothing. Strange, what have you done? I never meant for this to happen. You cannot control everything. You brought this on yourself. You break the rules and become a hero. I do it and I become the enemy. This doesn't seem fair. That's a clip of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which Mark has definitely not enjoyed. Okay, so I'm almost afraid to ask, what are you going to say stars-wise? Oh, I, uh, I, I mean, I was I was considering giving this nothing because it's it's that bad, but I'll give it a one for the, wow. for, the for the two minutes of of recognizable Sam Raimi near the end. Wow. Okay, that is one star for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now yep. on general release. Folks, he's like Bob Dylan. He gives us his best stuff when he's angry. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, John. Mark Royal there giving us his distinctive review of the new Doctor Strange movie. And my thanks as always to him. Up next, happy birthday, Orson Welles. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. If you're listening on the radio, we're coming to you at the later time of 9pm this week. Now, all week long I kept seeing things about Orson Welles, which I was happy to read because I'm a massive Orson Welles fan, as I know a lot of people are. But I also imagine there's a lot of people listening who don't know a huge amount about him. It was actually his birthday this week. He was born, well, he's long since passed, obviously. He died in 1985, but he was born on May the 6th, which was Friday of this week, 1915. As I said, I was reading lots about him, so I thought I might bring you a little schooler on the life and times of Orson Welles. And a number of years ago, I put together a whole series of audio pieces about some of the great actors and directors of all time. So uh, without further ado, why not surrender yourself to the magic of Orson Welles for the next 10 minutes? Of the many talents that Hollywood has given us over the years, there probably aren't any who could claim to have actually caused hysteria or even panic. Save Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars.
The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Wells' War of the Worlds was just another milestone in a career full of milestones. He was an actor, director, writer and producer who worked in radio, theatre and film. And if all that wasn't enough, he had one of the most distinctive baritone voices ever committed to tape, even when selling peas. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. Orson Welles' childhood had been a blessing and a curse. His parents were very bright people, with his father inventing a lamp for bicycles and his mother being a concert pianist. But his parents separated when he was four, his mother died when he was nine, and his father, who had begun drinking heavily due to his failing business, died when he was 13. But Wells was saved from any kind of destitution by having a wealthy surgeon, who was a friend of his parents, become his guardian. Orson was sent off to an expensive school in Illinois and his creativity was encouraged and he developed a love of theatre. But Wells spurned any future academic career and when he was only 16 he made his way to Ireland ostensibly on a travelling escapade but ended up in the Gate Theatre. This is the Gate Theatre in Dublin. First night audiences are always an experience and in this theatre I faced the very first first night audience of all in Dublin, that grand capital of eloquence and violent opinion where, where audiences enjoy and they delight in the privilege of free speech and you can sometimes hear as much dialogue from the gallery as from the stage itself. Legend has it that he strode into the gate and told the manager then, Hilton Edwards, that he was a Broadway star. Whether Edwards believed him or not, he was soon cast in a play, Jew Seuss, and was warmly received by audiences, as actor Simon Callow recently told a T.G. Cahar documentary. 16-year-old boy on this stage of this little theatre, which was by now really beginning to get quite a big reputation for itself in international theatrical circles. So they took a big risk, big, big, big risk. And um, it was a huge, huge success. After his Irish sojourn, Wells headed back to America to make his mark. And make his mark he did. He started acting on Broadway and began putting on productions of plays, including an all-black version of Othello, revolutionary stuff for the 1930s. He helped found the Mercury Theatre, which eventually graduated to radio. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in presenting Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air. The theatre productions on the radio were critically lauded, but didn't really do much business. However, all that changed with War of the Worlds. Orson Welles produced his own adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. The show simulated a news broadcast with Wells narrating, telling of alien invasions and eyewitness accounts of aliens attacking New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. The program was viewed by many as a real broadcast and panic spread. And then there was an angry public once they realised it was just, well, a radio play, forcing Wells to publicly apologise. The invasion by mythical monsters from the planet Mars seemed to us to be clearly in the realm of the fairy tale. Deeply regretful that this is not so. 
The whole debacle started a debate about the power of the media that still continues today. Despite, or maybe because of the controversy war of the worlds, Wells' star was in sharp ascendancy and he was much sought after. Wells signed a contract to write, direct and produce two films with the big film studio RKO and the contract gave him total control of the project, something unheard of at the time. The eventual result a year later was a film that regularly tops polls as the greatest film of all time. This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theatre and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. Citizen Kane told of the newspaper magnate Charles Foster Kane, played by Wells, tracing his rise to power and his eventual corruption from all that power. It was well known at the time that the character was not so loosely based on the life and work of publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, oh, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. The movie was a watershed in cinema and it's studied today in just about every film course because of its new uses of cinematography and its new adventures in storytelling. But due to William Randolph Hearst's rage at his loose portrayal in the film, the movie didn't score big at the box office as Hearst refused to allow mention of the movie in any of his newspapers and he publicly attacked Wells. Wells was in no doubt about the role Hearst had played in the Kane saga, as he told the BBC in 1960. But he had many hatchet men, editors and representatives of this great network of newspapers all over the country. And uh, <laughs> to get in good with the chief, there was a good deal of very strong hatchet, including an effort to frame me on a criminal charge. Wells' second film for RKO was a simpler affair called The Magnificent Ambersons, which detailed an American family battling modernization at the turn of the 20th century. In a sense, the Ambersons broke Wells' spirit. Towards the end of the movie, he went on a short trip to South America, during which time RKO took over the editing of the film and completely changed the end of it. Here's Wells' historian Joseph McBride. The studio took over the film in post-production and cut out about 45 minutes of the film and put a new ending on it. And it was uh, one of the most tragic cases of uh, the ruin of a great work of art in our, in our culture. Wells was enraged and he and Orkeo traded insults. Orkeo put out the story that Wells was difficult to work with and in a certain sense his great Hollywood period was at an end. late 40s, tired of Hollywood, and now having been divorced from another screen legend, Rita Hayward, Wells made his way to Europe. He continued to direct movies, and he would show up as an actor in other movies, giving stunning performances, like his Harry Lyon and Carol Reed's The Third Man, one of the great British movies of all time. And he reminded people just how commanding he could be when he delivered scenes like this. Well, what the fella said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. 
They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Wells returned to Hollywood in 1950 to act in A Touch of Evil, but was eventually hired as the director of the movie at the insistence of his co-star, Charlton Heston. And Wells played the police captain in a border town opposite Marlena Dietrich. Well, this case is over. I must come around some night and sample some of your chili. Better be careful. Maybe too hot for you. But it seemed that history would repeat itself when the studio re-edited Touch of Evil and completely changed Wells' version. Throughout the 60s and the 70s, Wells stayed busy by acting and directing, but he never really found the success of Citizen Kane again. Rightly or wrongly, Hollywood had deemed him too much trouble. He continued to work, though, and he continued to eat, weighing nearly 400 pounds at one point. One of his more unusual projects in the 70s was becoming the spokesperson for Masson Wines, giving the world this great advertising slogan. What Paul Masson himself said nearly a century ago is still true today. We will sell no wine before it's time. In the last years of his life, Wells' reputation was reappraised by Hollywood, and his part in the Hollywood story couldn't be denied, and he received lots of Lifetime Achievement Awards. Tonight, the Academy is honored to give him an Oscar all his own. In a way, Wells' career was almost like that of a Benjamin Button-type character. All the truly great stuff happened early. But Wells didn't seem particularly bitter about any of it. And he realized that being a maverick meant you were also going to be somewhat of an outsider. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in our philosophy. In time, when your young days are over, there'll be someone sharing their time with you. The distinctive singing tones of Orson Welles there, singing the song, I Know What It Is To Be Young, a year before he died, actually. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed our little retrospective of Orson Welles, the great Orson Welles, Hollywood Maverick, and then some. Up next, Ross Whitaker on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we chat to someone about their favourite movie. Ross Whitaker, as regular listeners to this show will know, is one of Ireland's most accomplished documentaries makers, whose films include everything from the great Katie Taylor documentary, Katie, to Unbreakable, all about Mark Pollock and his quest to walk again, and a whole load of other things. And it's fair to say, I've never seen a bad movie of his. And I tell no word of a lie. But anyway... More of that anon. Let's get to his favourite movie. Ross, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? Very well. So listen, I know what your favourite movie is and it seems to make a lot of sense for you, but it is a fantastic movie. Don't get me wrong. Tell our listeners what it is and why. Well, I chose When We Were Kings and um, the reason for that, I suppose, is it's very hard to pick a favourite when, when you love film and you watch films all the time. But it was a very kind of influential film 
on my life in terms of seeing it when I was quite young, being really moved by it and, and really kind of overwhelmed by it and seeing documentary maybe in a different way um, to what I had before that and yeah. made me curious about the idea of, of how these things are made and could I do that? Wow. Okay. Well, listen, we'll get to uh, how it might have affected you. Just remind people, because, you know, it was 1996, I think it, it won Best uh, Documentary at the Oscars that year or the following year. But it's about a very famous boxing match in what was then called Zaire. Yeah, it's the rumble in the jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Uh, Ali was in his early 30s. He'd kind of, you know, he, he had been essentially banned from boxing and, and cancelled out of public life for, for not going to Vietnam and, and fighting in the war for the US. And he was making his way back to the top. And while he was away, George Foreman had become, or, you know, in the years, George came into it slightly later, but he, he had become the number one heavyweight in the world. And he had ferocious power to the point where his coach used to say a prayer before his fights that he didn't kill the opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no one gave Ali a chance. And that happened in Zaire in Africa. And, and that was kind of unusual at the time. Uh, unusual now even and uh, it tells that story of the kind of culture clash Ali's you know ascent to the back to the top of the heavyweight standings and um, and throw all that in with some great music and interviews and so on it just is a kind of wonderful film in a way that is is much greater than the sum of its parts in a strange way you know it just worked and uh, I think it was a really a surprise hit at the time And, and then as you said it went on to win the Oscar the following year. And there's kind of almost, albeit a chaotic one, a circus atmosphere to it. I mean, James Brown shows up. It, it, it kind of, in a way, became almost a, you know, a celebration of black culture to some extent. Yeah. So they, they were having essentially like a, an African American slash African Woodstock. That was mm. that was the accompanying event. It was going to be a musical concert, and then the fight was part of this kind of whole jamboree of of Af- africa meets um black american culture and the fight and the music festival were due to happen essentially at the same time and they expected people to fly in from around the world and spend loads of money and you know and it was, it was a precursor i suppose to the sports washing we see these days mm-hmm. because it was mabutu and it was zaire and it was a, a despotic regime but he was putting up the money for for everything yeah, um, out of the nation's coffers, um, and, and even out of some other nations' coffers. I think Liberian finance minister was involved in, in putting some money into it as well. But what happened in the end was that um, Foreman was injured, and uh, in the build-up to the fight, and the fight had to be put back by six weeks. And that's a really important point as to why the whole caper wasn't successful, but also as to why when we were kings came into being. Because Leon Gast, the director, was making a film about the musical festival. That was his thing. He was a music documentary maker. And uh, he'd been hired to do that. And when he was going home, he was told not to film anything to do with Ali and Foreman. But when he was on his way back from filming uh, sort of the music rehearsals, he saw the door open to Foreman's gym. And he wandered in with his cameraman and said, hmm. Maybe I'll just do a bit of filming while I'm here. And what happened then was he captured Foreman's injury. So the blood, the moment where the fight was going to be called off, he had captured it on film and it was put back six weeks. And he convinced Don King, the famous promoter, 
to allow him to stay and for the six weeks because the guys were basically quarantined in um, in Zaire. Ali and Fraser didn't go home in the intervening time. So Don King put up a few quid and Leon Gast and a cameraman stayed and ended up filming for that six-week period as Ali and Foreman were preparing. But also Ali was having this really interesting intersection with the African people, the people of Zaire, and seemed to be going on a certain sort of voyage of internal discovery at the same time. And that's, I suppose, some of the elements that make the film kind of special. Yeah. And so then presumably the director was, he had this because it didn't come out till 96 and this was back in the mid 70s. So presumably he was sitting on this footage for a long time. Yeah, that's that's true. So I suppose when I would have seen it in 1996, I went with, you know, just, you know, a few pals at the time and and so on and and to my mind someone had just decided to make a film about mm. this you know in retrospect but actually he'd been trying to make the film you know soon after i, I kind of because i was so interested in it i looked into it and so on and he'd actually been trying to make it for for over 20 years um but of course everything was uh recorded on film stock so it's very hard it's not like now where you can just open your laptop and, and plug yeah. in a card or whatever and, and or connect your phone and watch your footage or look at your photos. You know, it costs a fortune to transfer a film onto what would have been videotape mm. at the time and then they would have had to go back to film to, for the final um, product. But yeah, so I, I think it was just sort of sitting in his apartment for years um, and eventually uh, they... Well, I don't know how much time you have, but essentially... <laughs> Give me the, the potted version. Okay, so the, the, the footage was actually owned by that Liberian finance minister. He had put the money up, given, bought Don King out, and, and obviously Don King was probably trying to get money from anywhere he could to just uh, reduce the risk of this entire venture. Yeah. Um, but that same uh, Liberian government official had died in a plane crash uh, very shortly after... Wow caper had happened in in uh, Zaire and so they um, eventually with the help of the famous producer David Sonnenberg who's a, a music manager but was a lawyer as well he he um, they kind of went and they went through a process of getting the ownership of the footage and once he owned that then it sort of started becoming you know obvious that it was there was a potential there to make a film and he started making the music film and then when they were editing that music film, they were seeing all this footage of Ali and, you know, realizing that that was him in his prime because they're looking at it from 20 or yeah. 15 or 20 years later and thinking, oh my God, like, you know, this is really, really special stuff that we have and we have to do something with it. So then the focus changed to making a documentary about the Ali for, uh, Foreman fight. And so when you look back now, do you, I, I mean, you've intimated that it was, but this was kind of instrumental in what you ended up doing in your own life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that and, and a few other documentaries sure. over the intervening five or six years, one of which would have been um, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be tele mm -hmm. Televised about you know Hugo Chavez in Venezuela made by uh, Kim Bartley, Irish, brilliant Irish filmmaker. And that was one that made me think like, oh, Irish people do this too, you know, yeah. <laughs> on an international scale. So the, yeah, so it was, I suppose it, it just planted a very small seed. I remember after watching it uh, in the time and probably in a couple of months after going and, and to the bookshop and, and uh, as a student, I couldn't actually afford to buy them, but going, you know, reading through the books about Ali and trying to find out, did he ever fight in Dublin? 
You and know, I should tell listeners, you, you of course, made a documentary called When Ali Came to Dublin many years later. Yeah, so it was many years later. But at that time, I was like, you know, could there ever be, could someone make a documentary about that? And I discovered that he had, and then over, you know, over time, learned more stories to do with that and eventually went on to do that. So yeah, I, when I think back to that, I realize that my mind was starting to work that way already. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that that's a fascinating take on it. And, and listen then, finally, and I suppose, you know, it dovetails nicely. I mentioned in the intro your uh, fantastic uh, Katie Taylor documentary, Katie, which was lauded and rightly so. And people can get on various platforms if they want to rent it or buy it or download it. But you must have been chuffed with last weekend's result. And part B of that question, I'm wondering, have you been talking to Katie since that happened? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's amazing. Like, it's just, she's such a brilliant person. Like, just, you'd never meet anyone like her. And so anytime she do, does anything that is success, you think she just deserves it so much because mm. she's just such a decent person and special person and just cares so much about what she does and works so hard. So, yeah, absolutely chuffer. And um, I did text her, yeah, and, and she's still over in the States. I think they're taking a kind of prolonged holiday with her family and uh, presumably she'll come home for a while then afterwards. But, um, yeah, she, she's absolutely chuffed, you know. She's yeah. buzzing. I think it's – and it, when you saw the crowd and, and just the cheers and everything, it was just – it was it felt like it was probably matched or surpassed winning the Olympic medal in London mm. 2012, which was such an incredible moment. So I think, yeah. I'm delighted for her and, and I think she's kind of hit the very, very top again. It's amazing. Indeed she has. And Kabir, finally, I meant to ask you earlier, but you know you talked about this guy sitting on the material for all that length of time and and even though things have gotten easier, but I think it's quite instructive that you must relate to that, that, you know, when it comes to making documentaries, there's a lot of, I don't want to say hanging around, but you can make something three years ago and then you mightn't use it to, for five years later. I mean, there is a lot of jigsawing to what you do. Yeah, see, I suppose the thing is, you know, documentary making is kind of a privilege to get to do, you know, spend time with people like Casey or in his case, Muhammad Ali. Mm. But there's not very much money in documentary. <laughs> so it's always, you're always trying to cobble together the budget to do the difficult bits, which is the editing and so on. You're talking about, you know, like that When We Were Kings film took years to edit. Mm. I mean, that's years of, of someone's life where they still have to pay their rent and all those kind yeah. of things. So it's tricky to get these films finished you know and mm. but i suppose in the case of when we were kings he probably did pretty well out of it yeah <laughs> off the back of it all the work was probably worth it in the end yeah well look his favorite movie is when we were kings that is ross whitaker his many documentaries are available and i would particularly well i'd recommend them all but particularly katie which is available ross on all good platforms where you can download and rent documentaries right yeah all of those apple tv and google play and amazon and sky store and all those you should be able to find it there yeah wonderful well ross you please keep making documentaries despite the waiting around and the cost and we will talk to you when the next one is out and no doubt very successful thanks a lot thanks john i've done something new for this fight i murdered a rock injured a stone hospitalized a brick i'm so mean i make medicine sick too fast! You're too fast! The king is going home to get his throne. Yeah, when I get to Africa, we're gonna get it on because we don't get alone. So we try to get the champions of the sports world, champions of the music world. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, it was whooping ass too. <laughs>
George Foreman was a phenomenon. The big bad monster and no one can whoop him. We're gonna fly in the air till we get to Zaire. This chump has got everybody scared. They thought he would take one of the world's worst beatings ever and he wouldn't give up. Scared of what? A clip there from When We Were Kings. The brilliant, absolutely brilliant documentary all about the rumble in the jungle back in the 70s. And my thanks to Ross Whitaker, who, as I said, is a remarkable documentary maker in his own right. And do check out Katie, uh, his Katie Taylor documentary, because uh, it's it's very timely at the moment, as he said. But that's a that's a great watch. That's it for this week. Next week, I'm very excited about this. I'm talking to Simon Callow, the great English actor of stage and screen and movies and narration and everything. A lot of people know him from Four Weddings and a Funeral, but there was so much more to him, and there is so much more to him. I'm talking about him like he's no longer with us. He is very much with us, and will be with us next week. I will talk to you then. In the meantime, I'll just remind you that this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on Newstalk, although it was coming to you at the later time of 9 p.m. this week on the radio. Get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Have a safe week and talk to you all next week.